Quit murdering people the first, everybody. Quit murdering people. Except for that Dixie Chick song, because I feel like that was just... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Move on. Let's go. (laughs) Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real-life creeps, from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mogap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. Listen, Louise now has demands because she's famous. She wants to know when her AMA is because she wants to set the record straight. So we put out our on our Patreon this week. This episode was Jeez Louise. It was all about Mogab's mom and the just ridiculous <laughs> antics she gets into. And uh, Mogab was a little nervous. I was. Putting it out. Didn't really know how how Louise would react. So but... I decided to like prep because I thought I was like, do how do I let her find this out? Like, how does this really because mm-hmm. like you had said in the episode we recorded, this has been like a lifelong journey slash dream of mine. And I was right. like, she's going to find out because for the longest time she didn't know about the podcast. She thought we were on the radio and someone out there. I'm going to find out who you were. Put the podcast app <laughs> on her phone. So it's like, this is inevitable. I've already removed her from the Facebook discussion group like multiple times. Like she has no business being in there. Everybody like, leave her alone. <laughs> so I, I called her and I was like, listen, I told a lot of stories about you to a lot of people. <laughs> she was like, excuse me. So I explained and it was so funny because I kind of gave her a brief run through. And the thing that she wanted to address most head was off the oatmeal. was the oatmeal. <laughs> and I thought of all the things here. For the many people listening who are not on our Patreon, first of all, what are you doing? Go yeah. join. It's only $5 for the bonus episodes. And if you want the mini creeps like this wonderful gem, that's at the $7 level. Worth every penny. We- <laughs> Worth every penny for you right now. But a little sneaky peek is uh, told a story about how her mom orders her oatmeal at McDonald's where she just drives through screams oatmeal at the at the box and then pulls forward to the window so like i said if you're in our facebook discussion group if you're not go join it but i did post in there that she wanted me to immediately (laughs) immediately release a statement that it's no longer oatmeal she now pulls through and yells egg mcmuffin (laughs) but the, the the best part is so after I tell her that, you know, this is going to come out and I told her all the stories and she was like so stuck on this oatmeal egg McMuffin thing. And she said, you know what? You're right. Like maybe I should like use a complete sentence and like do a greeting, <laughs> you know, like she yeah doesn't wait for them to respond. Like I'm like, you don't even know if they've taken your order, but she yells oatmeal immediately pulls through. The, it, sometimes there's no interaction with a McDonald's employee. <laughs> So after I tell her this, she's like, you know what? She had a change of heart. So today I get a call after work. She wanted to tell me about her egg McMuffin order this morning. She pulled up. She said, good morning. Not even hello. She she gave him a good morning. Egg McMuffin, no meat. She orders it. She gets the egg McMuffin and she is (laughs) appalled. She said, there was a piece of Canadian bacon on there. She was so pissed. She took the Canadian bacon off. She threw it which I thought she was going to throw it at the McDonald's. So when she told me she th- she went to throw it in this in the bag in the truck, I was immediately relieved because I thought for sure she was going to throw it at the establishment. 
She goes to no. throw it in the sack and the McDonald's bag misses the bag. <laughs> the Canadian bacon hits the side of the truck, slides down, is now wedged in the seat, and she cannot get it out. <laughs> I mean, this is not even 24 hours after the episode is released. And she's like, now what am I supposed to do? Get on my hands and knees and look for that bacon like a dog? <laughs> That's what she said to me. And I'm weak. Oh my God. I'm weak. It hasn't even been 24 hours. And so, of course, guess the lesson that she learned is that obviously this happened because she used extra words <laughs> and said good morning. So she let me know she will not be doing that again. <laughs> oh, not the one time they mess up her order. I know. Because she used too many words. Oh, <sighs> so I just wanted to let the people know. <laughs> <laughs> She's ready for her uh, AMA. She said she'd she'd be happy to answer questions, set the record straight. So, you know, part two. All right. It's coming on the Patreon. So <laughs> head on over to patreon.com slash a true crime creepers if you want the rest of that story. Yeah, whoa. <laughs> and uh, several more amazing stories. Yeah. Hey, but look what's in my cup. Isn't that some athletic greens? Hey. Oh, hey, girl. Hey, athletic greens. Athletic greens. Athletic Greens. I hope that sounds a lot better than what I Athletic Greens is they a are. supplement. Oh, <laughs> oh they are what? <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. Look, they are a supplement that you can add to your water, and with one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging, all of the things. And not only do they support all of that, but what's really, really awesome about them is that Kristen and I love to support a good cause. If you've been here a while, you know that. And Athletic Greens, for every purchase, they donate to organizations helping to get nutritious food to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry here in the United States. In 2020, Athletic Greens donated over 1.2 million meals to kids. That's amazing. What a great organization they support. And they're lifestyle friendly. So whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, or none of the freeze, it'll work for you. I'm none of the freeze and I love it. (laughs) It costs you less than $3 a day and you're investing in your health and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit. I do love a good cold brew. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. And I love the travel packs. They're little flat, like, just tear-open packages, and you pour it in the little clear water bottle they give you. Shake it up. It's awesome. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Again, that's athleticgreens.com emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. That's athleticgreens.com slash E-M-E-R-G-I-N-G. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively, mentally and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress, how to handle day-to-day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just 
talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? If not, you have to start the process all over again. If they are a good fit, you've got to figure out some way to fit appointments into your busy schedule. But BetterHelp takes away all of those barriers, and I'm so thankful. I love my therapist. I really feel like they took my questionnaire that I filled out when I signed up and really used it to match me to the perfect person. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Creepers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Creepers. Okay, so for this week's episode, a big thanks to Leslie for recommending this case. It comes from an episode of Dateline, season 23, episode one, titled Before Dawn. This is the murder of Lisa Teckel. Hey, remember when I watched an episode of Dateline by accident once? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. She didn't realize that it was Dateline until the very end when the words Dateline came on the like, screen. Oh my gosh, like, I just watched an episode of Dateline for the first is time. Is it Dateline I've been watching? <laughs> okay, and I also would like to preface this with uh, this case takes place in Iowa. I did consult my favorite Iowa native, Grace, for all of the pronunciations, but I have since forgotten everything that she said. So if I mess up any of these pronunciations, it's on her. I blame her. I've also been there like five times, which is like (laughs) four too many. I'm just kidding. It was great. But they do put corn on everything, and that's not a joke. And I wish they would not do that. (laughs) Don't want corn on my pizza. No. It's everywhere. One time as an appetizer. Explain yourself. Corn on the pizza. We got popcorn that had actual corn kernels in the popcorn. I swear to God. No. What? Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. You know, Iowa sounds like a fun place. <laughs> Love to go there. It's tight. <laughs> All right. So Lisa Marie Teckel grew up in Atumwa, Iowa, which is a small town with a population around 25,000. Her father, Todd Caldwell, was a big Elvis fan, hence her name, Lisa Marie, mm. named after Elvis's daughter. Mm-hmm. She had five siblings, including a sister named Presley. So big Elvis fan. Oh, that's cute. (laughs) Lisa's family described her as the life of the party, the kind of person that once she started talking, she wouldn't ever stop. You know, I can't relate, obviously. (laughs) Lisa was incredibly competitive. Whatever she did, she wanted to be the best at it. And her main sport was bowling. She was like a state champion bowler. She'd won three state bowling titles. Her parents were divorced when she was a teenager, and soon after the divorce, her father, Todd, met a nurse named Amy, and they remarried and had twin daughters. And Amy, the stepmom, and Lisa were very close. They would stay up late and watch the Golden Girls, and Lisa would tell Amy that she was such a Dorothy because she was so grouchy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, I love her. In high school, Lisa started dating a boy named Seth Teckel. His family had lived in the area for generations. His grandfather had even been the mayor at one point. His mom, Lorraine, was a social worker, and his dad actually owned the local bowling alley, Champion Bowl, and he was actually Lisa's high school bowling coach. 
Both Seth and Lisa worked part-time at the bowling alley, and that's how they met and got together. Seth's family loved Lisa. It was like she was part of the family and vice versa. Lisa's sister Presley absolutely adored Seth. She would call him her best friend. Lisa's dad, Todd, said he felt as close to Seth as if he was his own son. Seth's parents said that he loved helping people. He was a very empathetic person and very involved in his church. He had a really close group of friends that Lisa fit right in with. They all loved fishing, hunting, shooting guns, and she was just part of that group. His friends all said that Seth was very lucky to have Lisa. Their story is primed for a sweet romance tale. But unfortunately, this is a murder podcast. I wish it wasn't, though, because I could really get down with me just retelling like rom-coms instead. (laughs) Maybe that'll be our other podcast. I would love that. I can't do two of these, though. (laughs) Our palate cleanser. Our palate cleanser. Send in your sweet romance stories. We'll read them at the end. Oh, my God. Please do it, and that'll be a mini grape. Lisa graduated high school in 2007, and she did a few years at Indian Hills Community College and then went on to Buena Vista University where she earned her degree in criminal justice with a minor in psychology. Lisa had dreams of following in her father's footsteps, who was a deputy in the Wapolo County Sheriff's Department. She did an internship with the Iowa Department of Criminal Investigations, or the DCI, and she was a correctional officer in Washington County, as well as a reserve deputy in the same sheriff's department as her dad. So she was really going after this. Dang, girl, get it. She and Seth were together this whole time, and Seth became a volunteer firefighter, and he paid the bills by working as a security guard. You know I love that. The Mm -hmm. firefighter part. Are you a Delta Gamma if you don't have a thing for firefighters? (laughs) That is true. That sounds terrible. That's only because our house almost caught on fire multiple times a year. Yes. Seth and Lisa have been dating for seven years when he came to Todd and asked his permission to marry Lisa. Todd gave his blessing on the one condition that no matter what, he would protect her. And Seth said he would. So in October of 2011, he and Lisa got married. She was 22 and he was 21. (gasps) I know. They're so young. That's really young. That's crazy. They were together for seven years, though. So they got together at like 15. Yeah, like 14, 15. Yep. I know. Seth's dad gifted the new couple a trailer on this beautiful piece of property in a nearby hamlet called Agency, which has a population of about 625 people. Very rural. (laughs) A a few months after they got married, Lisa became pregnant, and the baby was going to be a girl, and they already had a name picked out early on, Zoe Maria. Aww. In May of 2012, Lisa was about four to five months pregnant with Zoe. It was Memorial Day weekend, May 26th, around 5 a.m., when a shotgun went off in the trailer. Oh, no. Marty Wonderland was the only deputy on duty that night in Wapolo County, and it had been a really quiet night. He said he was planning on just doing like one more round, going to watch the sunrise, and then heading home. But just after five that morning, around 5.30... Dispatch replayed a call that had come in to 911. It was Seth Teckel, and he sounded incredibly distressed. He said he was getting ready for work when he heard gunshots, and he came running and saw that Lisa had been shot in the side. And then he just broke down into sobs on the phone. 
Deputy Wonderland recognized the caller. He was a friend of Seth and Lisa's. This wasn't surprising. Seth and Lisa were generally known by most of the people at the Wapolo County Sheriff's Office and other first responders. Deputy Wonderland raced over to the trailer, and he made a call to have Lisa's father Todd come out. And he says he regrets calling him out there because Todd just shouldn't have to live with the same images that he now has in his head of Lisa. Oh, what do you do, though? I know. And when Todd got that call, his wife, Amy, just flew out of the house. No shoes, no socks. She started doing 90 miles an hour driving over to Seth and Lisa's. She was an ER nurse, and she was really hoping that if she could just get there, that there might be something that she could do, some way that she could help. The first person on the scene was a paramedic named Brian Bennett. When he arrived, Seth was standing on the porch talking to 911 again. He'd called them back, and he's just wearing a pair of cargo shorts. And that's the call that was relayed to Deputy Wonderland. He had called like a few minutes before just asking for police and an ambulance. Bennett said that Seth looked panicked and hysterical. Bennett ran inside to help Lisa, and Seth stayed outside on the porch. Bennett found Lisa on her back with only her knee covered by the sheet. And at first glance, there didn't seem to be anything wrong with her. Lisa felt warm, but she didn't have a pulse. So Bennett put the automatic external defibrillator on her. Oh, yeah. But the machine advised him not to shock Lisa. It's, it was like, do not shock, the machine said. So he took it off and started CPR. Wonderland arrived next, and he ran up to find Seth standing on the porch, doubled over at the waist, just sobbing. He ran past Seth and into the bedroom to help Bennett perform CPR. They moved Lisa to the floor, and that's when Bennett saw the blood. So up until this point, he's like, I don't know what's wrong with her. They pick her up, and they see that her body had been covering all this blood, and he now saw the bullet hole that was on the left side of her body. And Bennett told Wonderland to stop performing CPR. Lisa Teckle was dead at just 23 years old. Oh, my God. And her unborn child, Zoe Maria, died too. Wonderland went outside onto the porch where Seth was so upset he could barely speak. He was just heaving sobs. He was able to give Wonderland a quick recap of what happened. He said he was in the shower when he heard a gun go off. He jumped out of the shower, ran down the hallway, saw Lisa lying in the bedroom, grabbed his gun off the nightstand, and ran down the hallway to the front door. The door was wide open, but no one was around. So he ran back to the bedroom to find that Lisa wasn't breathing. He called 911 and then started to do CPR, but he just couldn't do it. He he said he'd just frozen. Seth told Wonderland that he couldn't face Todd. He didn't know how he was going to be able to tell him that he hadn't been able to protect his daughter. I just know in my heart of hearts that Seth did not do this, but I swear to God if he did, like, I am going to come absolutely unglued. Why are you looking at me like that? There's just no way. No, because I felt the exact same way. Yeah. Like, you watch watch him and how he's reacting because there's, like, dash cam footage of him coming out of the house and he's like... And the calls to 911, he just looks, I, I mean, he sounds so upset. I can't handle this. This also like really freaks me out when I'm like at home, like in the, sh- I just feel so defenseless when you're like, I can't imagine being in the shower and hearing a gunshot. I know. I know. Yeah. And you live alone. Woo. No, I don't. <laughs> I got a roommate. Oh yeah, girl. <laughs> I got a roommate now. She's never home, but I got one. 
Amy arrived just after Lisa was pronounced dead and Todd soon after. When he realized that his daughter had died, he just broke down into sobs, asking over and over what happened, what happened. And again, this is all recorded on dash cam footage from Wonderland Squad Car, and it's so sad. Lisa's sister Presley arrived, and she tried to comfort Seth, but he was completely inconsolable. He was wandering around outside, shirtless, barefoot, just sobbing. He started punching things in anger. This was the first murder in this town in 15 years. Is that a long time? 15 years with no murder? Yeah, it doesn't feel like that long to me in a small town, no? I don't know. I wanted you to say 50. You find me a town that hasn't had a murder in 50 years and we'll talk. Right, but didn't you say there's like 600 people in this town? I think they're talking about like Wapolo, not just agency. Yeah. And the question on everyone's mind was who could do this? But Seth had an answer and Todd was certain that he was right because Seth and Lisa had an enemy. Don't we always? (laughs) Brian Tate, a 56-year-old army vet and neighbor of Seth (gasps) and Lisa. They had had a feud going for a couple of months, and it had been escalating. It basically started as soon as Seth and Lisa had moved into the trailer that they lived in. Seth had gone around to the neighbors to introduce himself, like, right before they moved in. But Brian Tate would never answer the door when he tried to introduce himself, or he'd be in his vehicle and he'd just drive away. Then, two months before the murder, so this is just, like, a few months after they moved in. Yeah. Two months before the murder, Seth saw a dead deer on the road, and so he pulled it off the road and into this ditch, and I never really got clarification on this. I I looked this up in several different places and in all the appeals documents and stuff. I don't know if that ditch was on Brian Tate's property, but I have to assume that it was, that pulling it into the ditch put it onto his property, because later... Lisa saw the deer had been hung high up in a tree on Tate's side of the fence line. And then a little while after that, Brian Tate had put the deer carcass in Seth and Lisa's burn barrel. Ew. Seth knew that Tate was behind it. So he took the deer out of the burn barrel, threw it back onto Tate's property. And the war began. This poor deer. I know. I know. Just a pawn in a feud of men. Yeah. Brian Tate made several calls to the police complaining about vandalism on his property. Todd Caldwell had responded to one of the calls. This is Lisa's father. Mm -hmm. And Brian had accused Seth of the vandalism, not knowing that he was speaking to Seth's father-in-law. Brian said that on multiple occasions, dog feces and rocks had been hurled at his home and there were dents in the sides of his house from these attacks. And Brian said he thought of these attacks as acts of terrorism. And Todd tried to assure him, you know, like, I know these people that you're talking about. They're, I cannot see them doing this. But he, but Todd noticed that Brian kept a loaded shotgun next to him. And he got the impression that he might have some sort of mental disability, something that could keep him from thinking straight. He told Seth that if he was the one pulling these stunts, he needed to knock it off. And Seth said it wasn't him, but he'd make sure that no one he knew was doing it. And so Seth thought it was over. Right. 
But then Lisa called Seth at work to tell him that the deer was back. This <gasps> time it was on their driveway along with a section of re-rod. How is this deer still like intact? Look, I asked myself the same question and then I decided that I yeah, don't want to know the answer. Yeah, same. It just feels like it's a long time going. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Seth called the sheriff and Todd and another deputy responded and they went to talk to Brian, who called Seth and Lisa terrorists. Less than a month before the murder, Seth's dog Remington woke him up and he thought he heard someone walking around outside. So he took Remington outside and the dog ran to the fence and started growling. But Seth didn't see anything. Remington licked something off of a saucer, and Seth saw footprints near the saucer like someone had been standing there. The footprints were on Brian Tate's side of the fence. Remington then got really sick, and Seth took him to the vet, <gasps> and the vet did all these blood tests, but nothing no. came back. And so they told Seth that they thought that there must have been some type of poison in that saucer that didn't show up on lab tests. Was the saucer, like, setting there, or was... He yeah, like it was like just it? in the grass. Yeah. Oh. By the fence is my impression. There wasn't a whole lot of details on this incident, but. It wasn't like he was like holding it, though, like feeding him. No, 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 no. It was like on it the ground. Like set. Yeah. And he like went and licked it. Brian Tate had been diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. Seth's mom, Lorraine, she was a social worker who'd had experiences with people with paranoid schizophrenia before. And she was really scared for Seth and Lisa. She said that they were scared of Brian as well. So Deputy Wonderland and Deputy Phillips, he was one of Todd's best friends. And a team of investigators went next door after the murder to go talk to Brian Tate. They're certain that he is behind this. None of them knew how Brian would react. He seemed to be very unpredictable. And all of them were certain that eight hours earlier, he'd broken into the trailer and killed a five-month pregnant woman over a deer carcass. They didn't know what else he might be capable of, so they suited up in body armor before they left. Mm -hmm. But when they found Brian, he was very calm and he was unarmed. He pulled out chairs from inside the house so they could all sit down and have a little chat. And his mother and his brother were there. Because he probably thinks that they're coming to talk about like all the vandalism stuff. Right. I don't. Yeah. He said he'd gone to bed around 830 the night before, fell right asleep and didn't wake up until 11 that morning. He said he'd taken medication for his schizophrenia that made him sleep for long stretches. He was out. His mother confirmed the alibi, but her word didn't mean a whole lot to the officers. Yeah, yeah uh, I am. I am upset. <laughs> Brian said normally he'd be doing guard duty, walking his property line to try and catch these vandalizers. But that night, he'd gone to bed early. He said he'd always been such a nice guy, but people had always taken advantage of him. So he was now taking a different approach to life. Brian's story didn't convince anyone, especially Lisa's family, who were all certain that he'd done this. Seth was on his way to becoming a cop. He'd already put his notice in with his job as a security guard. I, well, I, they said he was a security guard, but then he was also working this job core job. So... I'm going to be honest, I'm not 100% sure what his job was, but he'd put in notice with it and that he would be taking a job as a jailer at the sheriff's office soon. And he was supposed to start that in like a couple of weeks. So he knew that as the husband, he'd need to get crossed off the suspect list. And he cooperated fully. He went down to the station without a lawyer saying he had nothing to hide. 
One thing I think the sheriff's office did that was really smart here was that they realized that this community was way too tight to conduct an unbiased investigation. You can't have Todd Caldwell interrogating his son-in-law, you know, for the murder of his daughter. But he didn't do it, right? Well, they have to cross him off the suspect list. He's the husband. I know. I'm trying to check you off my suspect list. (laughs) Trying to check me off yourself. I didn't do it. No, but I think you're... I hate the way you set me up here. (laughs) So they called in state agents from the DCI who could provide forensic research and elite interrogators while they worked with the local deputies who could provide local knowledge and manpower. So it was going to be this like team effort. Chris Thomas was the agent in charge of interviewing Seth, and Agent Thomas said that he was prepared to just gather as much information as he could from Seth, but he also needed to interview him as a potential suspect. He asked Seth to walk him through what happened, and Seth has already told this story with varying amounts of details, so I'm just going to kind of sum up all of those retellings here. He said that his alarm woke him up around 4.15 or 4.30, depending on which time he said it, that morning, and he got out of bed to take his dog Remington outside. The dog never growled or barked, but Seth said he had a weird feeling like someone was outside. He left the dog outside to do his business, reset his alarm for five, and laid back down in bed. When the alarm went off again, he got up, he let the dog back in, and he said he probably didn't lock the door when he let the dog back in. And I say he definitely didn't lock the door when he let the dog back in because... Do people do that in the country? It's 5 a.m. Yeah, it's 5 a.m. There's 625 people in a rural area. Are you like locking the door and then unlocking it to let your dog back in and then closing it and locking the door again? What kind of dog is it? I'm just curious. I I don't know. I don't know. (sighs) They didn't even talk about the dog in the Dateline episode, okay? There's no mention of Remington. I got his name from the appeals documents. And they didn't specify the breed. Listen, this is the country. You had like five guesses of what his name could have been. Obviously, he's named after a (laughs) shotgun show. I picture him because he's named after a Remington. I picture him as a King Charles Cocker Spaniel. (laughs) Really? He's so fancy. Okay. (laughs) He's probably like a German Schroeder Pointer. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. All right, so uh, once him and Remington are back inside, Seth got in the shower while Lisa is still sleeping. The bathroom window had no curtains, and so Seth said anyone outside of the home would have known that he was in the shower at that exact time. Somewhere between five and ten minutes later, one time he said it was like within five minutes of him getting in the shower. Another time he said it was like maybe ten minutes. He heard a loud noise that he didn't immediately realize was a gunshot. When it sunk in and it like after a few seconds, it sunk in like, oh, my God, was that a gunshot? He jumped out of the shower, grabbed a towel, ran into the bedroom and turned on the light. The dog was in the closet of the bedroom, scared and shaking because it's a King Charles Cocker Spaniel and not a German (laughs) Shepherd Pointer dog. And Lisa was still lying in bed. Seth went to Lisa, shook her and asked if she was okay, but she never responded. Seth pulled the covers back and saw that Lisa had been shot in the left side of her body, just under the armpit. And then he heard a noise coming from the living room. So he grabbed his gun from the nightstand, took it out of the holster, and ran down the hall with every intention of shooting whoever he found. He didn't see anyone in the home, but the front door was wide open. (gasps) 
He ran out on the porch, but he didn't see or hear anything. And when Seth went back to the bedroom, Lisa was unresponsive. She wasn't breathing. She had no pulse. And so he called 911 and told them to send an ambulance. Don't you think he would run next door, though, to Brian Tate? I mean, I guess he would go back and try and help Lisa and call 911. But if you if the only person you think it is is your neighbor, aren't you going over there? That's a good question. Like, I'm going to check on my wife and try and do whatever. And then if I was running down the hall with my gun, I'm running an extra 20 Especially feet Especially if door. you're like a hot-headed 22-year-old country boy who is getting into a feud over a deer carcass. You're probably the type of Listen, <laughs> I would have walked over there the second my dog got poisoned, probably. Do you know what I mean? Like, that seems mm-hmm. weird to me. I don't know. Yeah. No, that's... I agree. Oh, yeah, no. that is weird. Oh, no. No, I just think... I think that's weird. I don't know why he didn't I swear go to God, talk you to Brian. <laughs> Our friendship has never been on thinner ice. <laughs> it's not my fault how the story turns out, okay? Oh... In at least one of his earlier interviews, I think it was either Bennett, the first responder, or Wonderland, he had told them that she was still breathing when he found her, but now he's saying that since every time he's told the story since then, he said that he was she was not breathing. During the interview, he broke down a few times. He was asking why he couldn't protect the woman that he loved. Agent Aww. Thomas asked him if he thought it was an intruder, and Seth said that's the only thing he could think of. Thomas asked him what he thought this intruder's intention was, and Seth said he didn't know. He said he figured it was Brian Tate, and he was trying to get back at him, because Brian thought it was Seth doing all the vandalism to his property, which he insisted that wasn't him. Agent Thomas asked Seth if any guns were missing from the home, and he said he hadn't looked. So he had Seth, like, write down a list of the shotguns that he kept in the house and where they were located. So by this time, police knew that it was a shotgun that had killed Lisa. So Seth wrote out the list. I think he had like two or three shotguns in the house. And then Agent Thomas started with the harder questions. He asked him if there were any issues in their relationship, any affairs or things like that. And without hesitation, Seth said, no, absolutely not. Agent Thomas asked him if Lisa had any problems with her coworkers. And he said that about five months earlier, he'd seen a text on Lisa's phone from a coworker that said something like, thanks for last night. And Seth called her out on it, and she told him that she'd just given the coworker a ride home because he hadn't been feeling good, and that was it. So Seth said he wasn't mad about it. Agent Thomas asked Seth to rate how happy he and Lisa were in their marriage on a scale of 1 to 10. And Seth initially said they were a 10 that night before the shooting. Yeah, 10. A 10. 10. Happiest you could be. But then Agent Thomas said, I heard you guys had an argument, though. So then Seth said, okay, maybe we were more like an 8 or 9. He said that Lisa hadn't been upset, but she'd just kind of been giving him shit about not wanting to listen to the baby's heartbeat. She had this like portable ultrasound little thing that you could contraption. like. Yeah, contraption where you could listen to the baby's heartbeat. And she was a little upset that he wasn't interested in really listening to the baby's heartbeat. Yeah, but he why said not? It... <laughs> that upsets me too. I agree. He said it wasn't a serious fight, though, so no big Listen, deal. buddy, this is the soundtrack of your life, so you better put those earbuds in and like it. There's a human being inside of your wife right now. Like, yeah, maybe you appreciate should listen to the, the miracle heartbeat. of life a little bit. Yeah, you should listen to the heartbeat because it's going to be screaming in your ears. Like, it's <laughs> going to be the next, like, you Do you well, want to hear the cutest story in the whole world? Yes. 
because this when one I sucks. Was, when I was currently, <laughs> when I was in New York, I was there for my cousin's baby shower. She's due in September, so however many months that is, that's how pregnant she was. This was a few weeks ago. That would be very pregnant. <laughs> yes, and we we went out to a Broadway show, and I was sitting next to her husband, and then she was sitting on the other side of him. And every now and then throughout the show, out of the corner of my eye, I just see this like <gasps> action happening where she keeps like just grabbing his hand and like shoving it onto her belly because the baby was moving. <laughs> it was so cute. Like anytime the baby moved, she just grabbed his hand like really quick Aww. so he could feel it. I know it was really cute. Okay. Uh. So there's a happy on a 10 <laughs> couple. And now let's get yeah. back to these guys. <laughs> yeah. Cool. While Seth is being interviewed, police are out at the trailer searching it for any sign of who the intruder could be. They checked the bathroom to see if it looked like someone had showered in there that morning, and they did find a wet towel in there to back up Seth's story that he'd been in the shower. Right. But there was no sign of forced entry or any kind of struggle, and they couldn't really find any sign that anyone else had been in the house apart from some cigarette butts in the driveway and a peanut butter and jelly sandwich that was in a Ziploc baggie on the back porch that they talked about in the Dateline episode, but I couldn't find any word about this peanut butter and jelly sandwich in any of the... <laughs> How bizarre. Uh, in any of the appeal documents that I read. Do you yes. think it was like an Uncrustable or like a truly like they made... <laughs> no, they had pictures. Butter. It was a full-on yeah. peanut butter and jelly sandwich with the crust still on, so Yeah. While they're, like, searching at this trailer, a friend of Seth's, Colton, went up to the trailer and he told deputies that he was there to pick up his puppy that Seth had been boarding for him, which I think is different than Remington. At first, I thought they were the same dog, but I think that they're two different dogs. There was another dog. a lot of living things in this trailer. Yeah. So the deputies started asking Colton some questions about Seth and Lisa because he was there and they're like, hey, give us some information. And Colton told them that Seth had a track phone. Do you know what that is? Oh, I do know what that is. It was a second secret prepaid phone. Burner phone. And that he used that phone to text with just one other person. No. A woman he worked with named Rachel McFarland. Like Billy McFarland. They're probably related. <laughs> no, this cannot go down like this. I trusted you. I thought. I trusted Seth, too. OK, but then I found out that all that wailing he was doing at the trailer. Deputy Wonderland said not a tear in sight. Not a tear. Just, Just a like lot of screaming. Heaving sobs. Yeah. But we say all the time, you can't predict how someone's going to react when you just see your pregnant wife has been shot. And an affair is not proof of murder. I agree. Yeah. But don't look good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So these deputies know at that moment, Seth is being interviewed by Agent Thomas mm. while they're getting this information. So they start shooting texts off to Agent Thomas about this new information. And while this is all going on, Seth's dad, Doug Teckle, he's at the police station with a lawyer trying to get the interview stopped, but the station door was locked. And so they're banging on the doors to try to get in, but nobody's opening the door for them. Like the- No, this is a cluster. (laughs) There's another agent inside and he knows that Doug Teckle and the lawyer are outside and he's not opening the door for them. 
But Agent Thomas had told Seth at the beginning of the interview that he was free to leave at any time. And he was an adult with an almost fully formed frontal lobe who had made the choice to be in there without a lawyer present. He's so confident. Yeah. This Brian guy is, but I don't know. Maybe Brian did it. I don't. Yeah, I know. I know. But y'all, seriously, I know you're trying to look innocent and cooperative and maybe don't want to spend the money because they're expensive. But if it's a murder, make sure you have a lawyer, please. Like, even if you're super, super innocent, though, like, even if, like, yeah, if something especially if you're super, you, super innocent, if you did it, I don't really care. But if you're, <laughs> if you're innocent, get a lawyer. What if it's someone that you tangentially know? Like, if something happened to you, get a lawyer. And I live in Kentucky. Get a lawyer. Get a lawyer. Because do I want you to be punished for the murder you committed? Yes. But do I want to make sure that none of your rights are violated along the way? Um, Yes. Get a lawyer. Okay. You heard it here first. All right. Back in the interview room, Agent Thomas now knows about the secret phone connected to the secret girlfriend. But before he could even ask him about it, Seth starts offering up some information. Agent Thomas said he thinks that Seth could tell that he was getting text messages with updates and might have assumed that he'd been caught considering (gasps) there were people that knew about it. So he tells Thomas that there was this girl from work he was texting named Rachel McFarland, but they weren't dating or having an affair or anything. The texts were all very casual, just more like, hey, how's your day going? You know, they weren't sexual in nature. on your regular phone, homie. (laughs) But Lisa had found out about it and asked him to stop talking to her, so he did, and everything was fine. He did not bring up the track phone. And I know when I want to talk to my coworkers in casual, not sexual ways, I definitely get a prepaid phone to mm-hmm. do that on. Yeah, same. Where okay. was this phone hidden? Like, where, sh- where would one look for a phone it if was, we needed okay. to find one? It was in his truck. They find it. Oh, it was okay. in his truck. So Agent Thomas said, okay, so we are not going to find any of your, like, DNA on Rachel then, right? Because you've never dated. You've never been physically close or anything. And Seth's like, well... We've yeah. hugged and I, and I've kissed her. Oh. But he said they'd never had sex. So DCI agent Birmingham was working with Agent Thomas and they got more information from Colton that Seth had been exchanging photos with Rachel using his track phone. She sent him bikini photos and topless photos <gasps> that and oh. yeah, that Seth had shown his friends. His friends had seen these photos. You cannot. Yes. Go to the trouble of having a separate phone and then be telling people. Right. And well, I'll tell you all the story about why he had that separate phone. We'll get into that. Okay. So Rachel sent him bikini photos, topless photos. That's photos that Seth had set, had shown his friends. Yeah. Wolf. I'm out on both of them. Yeah. So when they confronted Seth about it, Seth said, well, there's obviously more to this whole Rachel thing. Yeah, obviously. And he said that Rachel was under the impression, I don't know where she got these ideas in her head, these silly ideas. Under the impression. Under the impression that he was leaving Lisa. Oh. And she was under this impression probably because he told her that he was leaving Lisa. Yeah. And he he told her that the night before Lisa's murder (gasps) or like two nights before. Oh, God. Yeah. At work, she'd asked him if he was going to go through with it, and he said, yeah. And by that, she thought he meant the divorce, not... Not the murder? Right. 
But he told the police that he just liked the attention from Rachel. He was just stringing her along. He said he hadn't been honest before about her because he really didn't want Todd to find out. God. Not Lisa. Right. He did not tell Agent Thomas about the track phone this whole time. They know about it, but he didn't offer that up. But he did admit that two weeks before the shooting, he'd been with Rachel while Lisa was looking for him and his friend had to cover for him. Agent Thomas told Seth that the facts of the case told them that he was responsible for killing Lisa. Seth said that he didn't do it. And if he wanted to be with Rachel, he'd just divorce Lisa. Yeah, it's that easy. Like, but no one ever does that, I feel like. Or maybe just in these stories, because, you know, I'm on a murder podcast. But yes, I think there are people that do just divorce the person. Yes. But we don't talk about them here. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, then they just get divorced and go live their lives. He got angry and he walked out. Police never collected his clothing. They didn't scrape his fingernails, nor did they test his hands for gunshot residue. GSR tests are still considered reliable and used in court, but in actuality, they don't really tell you whether or not a person has fired a gun because there are a lot of other variables. Like if you get a positive result, that doesn't mean necessarily that you fired a gun. And if you get a negative result, it doesn't mean that you necessarily have not fired a gun. But still, it can be a tool, and it's one that they didn't use. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine. But the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pros custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, Pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros dot com slash creepers. The interview lasted five hours and they hadn't really gotten anything out of him. All Seth had admitted to was making out with Rachel a few times. He'd insisted over and over again that he did not kill Lisa. But at the end of the day, they now had two good suspects that they hadn't been able to eliminate, a husband with a possible secret girlfriend and a possibly unstable neighbor with a vendetta. Now I feel bad for this neighbor. I know. We'll get into that. Unlike the rest of his family, Todd Caldwell's faith in Seth was starting to waver. He was no longer a true believer, staunchly opposed to even the idea that Seth could do something like this. The news about Rachel McFarland had totally shaken him. But Lisa's mom, Tracy, and Lisa's sisters all told Seth that they know he didn't kill her. 
At the crime scene, investigators searched the three vehicles that were there, and they found the track phone in his <sighs> truck and a handgun. They also collected two other cell phones from inside the bedroom. Agent Thomas tried to examine Lisa's phone, but all the report said was that he was not successful. Like, there's some test they do on these phones that, like, pulls these reports, and it wasn't successful. I'm not sure why he couldn't examine the phone, but he couldn't. I'm surprised Seth didn't get rid of that track phone. I know. <laughs> I just amateur hour over here, but. Uh, yeah. Investigators were focused on trying to find the murder weapon. They had a lead on this 12-gauge shotgun that had belonged to Seth's friend, Lucas Howell. Lucas had been living in the trailer with Seth and Lisa, but had recently moved out because they needed the room for the baby. Lucas told investigators the day of the murder about his gun. Because there were photos taken inside the home where you can, like, see the gun rack and Lucas's gun is there on the gun rack in the living room. And Lucas had not taken the gun with him when he moved out. And that gun was not in that gun rack anymore. Oh, no. It also was not on that list that Seth had written out for the DCI agents. So investigators were trying to track down this gun that they were certain was the murder weapon. And it didn't take them long to find it. The day after the murder, they found the gun about 20 yards from the back door of the trailer, close to a tree, and hidden in some very tall grass. 20 yards? It's not even a football field. No, it's not even half a football field. I know. I just can't even get... It's it's not even a corner. Oh, hey, hey, guess who's... Guess who's playing yeah. fantasy football this year? Oh, guess who knows sports? <laughs> guess who's going to get into the sports? I hear it's all about earning the most points. So I think I'll win. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Ballistics would later confirm that this was the gun used to kill Lisa. This Lucas's shotgun was the one used. Three days after the murder, Deputy Phillips and State Agent Birmingham decided to go to Seth's work and interview Rachel. They spoke for two hours, and Rachel told them that she and Seth were having an ongoing relationship, and they'd been sending texts and photos that were sexually explicit. She said that he would tell her that he loved her, how pretty he thought she was, and how he wanted to be with her. God, I... I know. But she said she was always very clear that he has a wife who's having a baby, and she doesn't wreck families. She only sends. You already are. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all both are. She also said that they never had sex and that she would be really surprised if Seth had done this. I think a lot of that is also because she said she felt so guilty. She did not want this to have happened because of her. Oh, yeah. Deputy Phillips and Agent Birmingham then went back to interview Brian Tate again and asked him point blank if he'd had anything to do with Lisa's murder. He said no, and he stuck to his story about being asleep. And I honestly don't know if there's more to it. The Dateline episode just said that Agent Birmingham believed him and crossed him off the suspect list. And I couldn't find any other information about why he was dismissed as a suspect. But that seems like really like a bold leap of faith. Yeah, like he just believed him that he was asleep. I think I think it was probably that there was just so much other circumstantial evidence pointing to mm-hmm. Seth 
and nothing really pointing to Brian apart from they had been having this feud and Brian had called the police on them. But again, Brian had always just called the police. Yeah. You know, I'm still hoping this turns out differently than I already know that it does. But I am glad that small town blue didn't just assume it was the person that was I forgot what condition you said that he had, but uh paranoid schizophrenia. Which, yeah, so I'm glad they didn't yeah. just say like, oh. Oh, it has to be yeah. him. He's crazy. He did it. Right. Right. I totally agree. Yeah. And I think that was everybody's assumption in the beginning. Mm-hmm. This guy's crazy. Let's go get him. And and I think that's why Seth probably was so confident that he was mm-hmm. like, I'm going to be able to pin it on the neighbor. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And so crossing, eliminating Brian as a suspect left them with just the one suspect. The visitation was held for Lisa, and there was such a big turnout, including lots of fellow officers from the sheriff's department. The Caldwells stood up front by Lisa's coffin while the Teckles kept to the back of the room. Did Seth go? He was there, and at some point in the middle of the visitation, he went up to Lisa's sister, Presley, the one he was really close to, and he gave her a big hug, and he told her that she'd always be his little sister, and he loved her. DCI agents came in and they sat right behind Seth and his dad and they quietly asked Seth to come outside where Deputy Wonderland was waiting to arrest his friend (gasps) and charge him with first degree murder and the non-consensual termination of a human pregnancy. Oh my gosh. At the memorial service. Yeah. The cuffs put on him were Lisa's handcuffs, the ones that she used as a reserve deputy. I don't know if they were going for a kind of poetic justice thing with that or if it was just a coincidence, but... Did uh, he even know? Did they say it, I wonder? I doubt it. Lisa's funeral was held at the same place as her wedding. She was buried in her jailer's uniform, and she had a special detail of officers that served as pallbearers. Her mom, Tracy, said that she should have been able to watch Lisa become a mom, and it just wasn't fair that she was denied that. So now Seth's murder trial is coming up. Everyone expected Seth's lawyers to bring up Brian Tate throughout the trial. Brian's sister said that Brian had seen how the papers were calling him a crazy and deranged neighbor, Mm. and it just devastated him. She said he spiraled downward and he died in September 2012, just (gasps) four months after the murder. No. I know. His sister says the family thinks he died of a broken heart. I hate this story. It does seem like Brian Tate was villainized for no reason and called all of these names, probably because he made an easy target as someone diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. But he was taking care of his mental health. He was taking medication to treat it. He was doing what he was supposed to be doing. Did he poison the dog, though? I don't know anything about the dog. They didn't talk about that in the Dateline episode. I don't know. I could see somebody... That had been had dog feces thrown on his yard all the time and like rocks Mm -hmm. thrown at his house every night. Like I could see him maybe getting to the point where he poisons the dog. Luckily, the dog was fine. You know, the dog didn't die. But I don't know for sure. I I assume that it was him because who else would it be? Seth poisoning his own dog? I don't I doubt it. He shot his own wife and unborn (sighs) child. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, probably. 
In February of 2013, Seth's trial began. The Caldwells had never wanted to believe that Seth could have committed this murder. But by the trial, even Presley had started to think that he was guilty. There just wasn't any other explanation. They couldn't see how Seth's story made any sense. Yeah. The Caldwells and Teckles should have been one big happy family. And now, because of Lisa's murder, they were divided, sitting on opposite sides of a courtroom at a murder trial. These were families that had been close for years. Todd got on the stand at the trial and he got choked up while he talked about how everyone always said how alike he and Lisa were. And he would say that she was just the best parts of him. The most important piece of evidence was the shotgun. It was a firearm that he kept in the house. Seth's story was that an intruder had killed Lisa. So why would a murderer come to the murder scene without a murder weapon? Yeah, you're not doing that, I guess. That was kind of the big thing to investigators that pointed to Seth. And then to find the murder weapon 20 yards away, I think I cut this out of my script on accident, but Seth and his dad went back and looked for the gun. Like the police, the police saw Seth and his dad out in that grass looking around before they found the gun, looking around for something, but then leaving before they found it. He couldn't find where they had because the grass was so tall. He couldn't see where he'd like where he'd allegedly dropped the gun. But he's thinking he's looking for Brian's gun or whoever's gun. Not that he went back and was, like, getting the gun that he used. Well, he wasn't like, hey, everybody, I'm searching for a gun. They just saw him and his dad out there looking for something. Oh. And it was right around where the gun was. He just missed it. A friend, Tyler Batterson, testified that Seth tasked him with messing with his neighbor, Brian Tate. What? Seth had told him to fill a five-gallon bucket with dog poop and dump it on Tate's property, on Brian Tate's property. Who has that much dog poop? I'm like, did they collect it over time? <laughs> yeah, what gross. did they do? Did they go to the, like, animal shelter? Yeah, I don't know. I need all your dog poop. They dumped it on Brian's blazer and on his front porch. And when they told Seth what they'd done, he laughed. The next weekend, Tyler and some friends went back out to Brian's house and threw rocks onto Brian's garage and shed roof. Seth Who are these friends? Like, you have friends that are hiding your affair, that are, like, bullying other people. I mean, you you apparently got good friends, but they suck. Right, right. Yeah, I agree. Seth hadn't told them to do the rock throwing thing, but he knew that they had done it and I'm sure wasn't opposed to it. And this is what really turned Todd against Seth in the first place. Not even Rachel McFarland. It really was learning that Seth had manipulated him to believe that the neighbor was just crazy and deranged and possibly dangerous to the point where his complaints had really been written off by police as yeah. rantings. He's calling them terrorists and stuff, but because they are little yeah. terrorists. Little when all terrorists. the while, yeah, when all the while it had been him and Seth probably knew that that's how it would go. It just showed how manipulative he is and how good at lying he is. Yeah. The state's star witness was Miss Rachel McFarland. Oh, Mm -hmm. She testified that her relationship with Seth started in December of 2011, two months after he got married. (gasps) Oh, 
Oh, I know. They'd started talking on Facebook, and the messages became more and more personal and flirtatious. Oh, well, that's the problem. Uh Facebook. In January, Rachel's live-in boyfriend, Drew Ballard, found the messages, and so Rachel stopped using Messenger, and they started sending text messages on their phones. But then Lisa found out that Seth was texting Rachel. This is the story he's telling the cops, right? Lisa found my text, and so I just stopped talking to her. No big deal. So he did stop talking to her uh, through text on his phone. Until he got a track phone. Right. But Lisa found those, when Lisa found those text messages, she called Rachel. And she was really mad. And she told her to stop talking to her husband. So then they started using emails to communicate. Seth's account was created under the name Rick Jones, and the emails were spicy. Rick Jones. Mm -hmm. Rachel had sent him nude photos, but these weren't photos that she'd taken for Seth. Like, she had sent them to several different people. She has a gallery of sorts. Sure, yeah. But then Drew, her boyfriend, found the emails. And so this is when Seth decided to buy the track phone to communicate with her. Wow, Ray- I mean, they really are doing the most to stay in contact. I know. <laughs> I know, like short it's of like, smoke Is signals. that worth it? I know. I know. Carrier pigeons? Carrier pigeons. That's a good one. Rachel said she believed that they were in love. And sometime in February or early March, they started meeting up in person where they'd basically just talk and make out. They kept <laughs> insisting that they weren't having an affair because they weren't having sex. But y'all know you don't have to have sex to cheat, right? I mean, is that I'm I'm you know, define the parameters for your own relationship, but I'm sure Lisa would have considered this unfair. If you have to go through if you are hiding anything, right. it's an affair. Yes. Okay. Yes. I, t- I totally agree with that. Yep. On May 20th, 2012, Seth and Rachel met at a nature preserve, and he told Rachel that he had tried working things out with Lisa. But that Rachel was exactly what he wanted. Oh. Rachel had broken up with Drew two days earlier, and she said it was basically because of Seth, but also because she liked this other guy, Brandon Kaufman, (laughs) who she also worked with, (laughs) and who was actually available, unlike Seth. So she's basically like, look, if you don't leave Lisa, I'm just going to go be with Brandon and, you know... He's available and you're not. So if you don't make yourself available, I'm going to go be with Brandon. And then while they're at this nature preserve, Brandon actually called her and while she was with Seth. And so Seth got really jealous and told Rachel to just give him two weeks. Six days later, Lisa was murdered. Oh, my God. Yeah. And the texts in those six days are literally like a countdown to the murder. On May 24th, two days before. Rachel was under the impression that he'd be talking to Lisa about a divorce. The next day on May 25th, he texted Rachel and said, quote, well, we talked. I told her I wasn't happy. She got mad, then sad. Then I slept on the couch. And all she wants is for me to be there tonight after work when she packs. So hello, Mrs. Resuscitator, which let me explain. Rachel always called Seth Mr. Resuscitator because he was a volunteer firefighter. They think it's cute. Uh, okay. So calling her thank Mrs. You for explaining right. that. So calling her Mrs. Resuscitator is basically him telling her, like, they're going to be together. Yeah. yeah. For real. 
later that day, he texted her from his regular phone, not from the track phone, on the 25th, the day before the murder. And Rachel figured this was because he didn't need to hide the text anymore. It was all out right. in the open. Do we trust her? her? Do we really think she thinks that this is like a no, divorce and not a murder? These are all the text messages like that yeah. are coming through. Yeah, yeah I, I believe I believe Rachel. I don't think that she okay. wanted him to murder her. I think she was like gonna go be with Brandon Kaufman. Like she yeah, wasn't she, that serious. She got options. Like, yeah, I mean, she really did. I think she was just like, look, I like you. And if you're yeah. unhappy in your marriage and you want to leave, like, I'll be here. I'll be with you. But if you are not going to leave your wife, I'm going to go be with Brandon Kaufman over here. Seems like a recipe for success. And like, I mean, you uh, we all, they're 21, 22. Yeah, I keep forgetting I mean, that part. Bunch of dummies that should just be <laughs> one of frat parties and not. I know. I'm married. like, wait a second. <laughs> I wasn't even trying to define relationships then. I was just like, no. And uh, so 12 hours later, after he sends this text from his regular phone, 12 hours later, Lisa's dead. That's awful. The defense said that this motive of the affair fell flat because he and Rachel hadn't had sex yet. They'd only kissed a few times. They really, really stressed this. They're like, nobody is killing somebody for an affair that hasn't even begun yet. Like they're they're thinking they're really doing something there with that. And it just it's not moving the needle for me. <laughs> it's not. It's not doing it. The defense used Brian Tate's mental illness to show that he was not harmless and used Todd's summary report, Todd Caldwell, her father, Todd's summary report from that day that he interviewed Brian to prove it. Yeah. Because in the report, Todd had advised deputies to use extreme caution if they had to respond to a call at Brian's house. And this is because he is under the impression that this guy's mentally unstable. He's calling his son-in-law a terrorist and no. throwing deer carcasses on his property. He knows that he has a mental disability and he's sitting there with a loaded and he shotgun. he knows he has a gun. Yeah, yeah. He's sitting there with the loaded shotgun kept next to him. So he's like, if you respond to this property, he has a weapon. Be cautious. And he's, he's writing that report with limited information. He doesn't know yeah. that it's Seth vandalizing Brian's property. He thinks it's not. I think Todd Seth is shady. Yeah, I think Todd thought for sure that Seth wasn't doing it. Yeah. And Brian was crazy. Why would you assume that? Why would you assume Seth is doing it if all you know, I mean, all you know is that they're just married and expecting a kid. You have no idea the other stuff. Right. The defense's story was that Brian Tate had broken into the Teckles home, taken the shotgun off the wall. Happened to take the one shotgun that doesn't belong to Seth, too, by the way. Mm-hmm. The one shotgun that he happened to leave off that list. Yeah. Like, that's didn't the one shotgun. Didn't bring his own over. Didn't bring his own shotgun that he owns. Didn't bring that over. Took the one shotgun that Seth left off the list and does not belong to him. Shot Lisa for revenge on Seth for all the vandalism. Then dropped that peanut butter and jelly sandwich um, that was inside that <laughs> Ziploc bag. Dropped that on the back porch. Uh, for, that was his that was his snack, snack for later. And this became a key evidence to support the defense's claim because they said that if the sandwich had been there overnight, animals definitely would have gotten to it. But because it was still there intact the next morning, it must have been brought over by the killer. Animals ain't worried about this peanut butter and jelly. We got deer carcasses going they back and forth. spent 20 minutes talking about this sandwich on the stand. And you're so right. 
there it's a sandwich they've got a deer carcass that hasn't been consumed by animals overnight but you think they're going after this peanut butter sandwich it's a plastic bag seth's defense attorney said that this sandwich was the most compelling piece of evidence (laughs) i hate it here I don't know about you. I'm not super compelled by it. Maybe I'm just not seeing the full picture. My favorite quote of yours. You know, we used to do those quote tiles on Instagram. uh I want yours to be, them not doing it ain't doing it for me. (laughs) I don't remember that. When did I say that? Just then when you were talking about like they keep saying that they, whatever, they're not having sex. Oh, (laughs) them not doing it ain't doing it for me. (laughs) Did I say that? Put it in a quote. That's or funny. something, not moving the needle. It's not, I don't know. Oh, I said it's not moving the needle for me, but oh. them not doing it ain't doing it, it ain't for doing me. It That's for me. way better. It ain't doing it for me. It ain't. Oh, fucking peanut butter jelly. <laughs> <laughs> the jury deliberated and deliberated and deliberated and could not agree. One holdout juror in particular was responsible for the stalemate. During the deliberations, he started pounding on the door saying he wanted out. Was this in town or did they go somewhere else? This was in town. This was in town. Oh. Yeah. The jury deliberated for three days, but in the end, the trial ended in a mistrial when the jury could not reach a verdict. The jury was polled and they were 10 to 2 for a conviction. So two for not guilty. So prosecutors decided to retry the case. The venue was changed this time to Mount Pleasant, which was tough on the Caldwells, who now had to make the commute out. And also the layout of the courtroom meant that the family had to sit directly behind Seth. Mm. Yeah. Presley had a really hard time with this. He was like her best friend. And now it's becoming clear to her that he murdered her sister. Yeah, I can't even. I know. Once again, the family had to sit through all of the testimony of the murder of their loved one. The trial went almost exactly as the first one, almost line for line, except this time the defense went even harder on Brian Tate than they had before. They even had Brian's psychiatrist testify, who had treated him towards the end of his life, and he said that Brian was paranoid and there were government conspiracies affecting him. And like, I mean, we know all this already, but we also know he was on medication for it. Rachel McFarland testified again. The prosecution pointed out a text from Seth to her that was sent at 10.51 p.m. on May 24th, two nights before the murder, where he said, wish me luck. I love you. And again, she thought he meant good luck with talking to Lisa about getting a divorce. Like packing up all your stuff. Right. But then two days later, Lisa's dead. But once again... The trial ended with a hung jury and a mistrial was declared. And this time the jury was nine to three voting to convict. What year are we in even? How many years has this been? Well, it's she was murdered in 2012 and the third trial starts in 2014. So this was all very quick. Like, I think the first trial was within a year of the murder. Like, it was very fast. I just it's so... I always wonder how people think this is going to end when it's like, okay, so now you've murdered your wife and your unborn child, so you're not with them. Your Mm -hmm. mistress is testifying against you, so you don't have her. Mm -hmm. You're going to go to prison for Mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, what what was the point here? Right. It's just, I, it's never working out for you the way you want it. There are very rare, 
I've read stories, and I'm sure there probably are people that we just have never heard of. I've read stories of people that got away with murder because there just wasn't the evidence to prove it. But it's like, we all kind of know that they did it. They're not leading great lives. Like, things are not good for them. They're not, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, OJ Simpson's the only one. He started a Twitter account, and it's Things aren't great for him. Yeah. You know, he used to be very famous for good things. Like, people admired him, you know? Things aren't great for him. And he still had to go to jail. Pay your taxes. In July of 2014, Seth's third trial began, and this time it was held in Davenport, three hours from Ottumwa, Ottumwa, Ottumwa. The prosecution was feeling really good. 19 out of 24 jurors had voted to convict, and they were sure that they could get all 12 this time. Seth brought on a new defense team who decided to make some tweaks to their defense. They decided that instead of focusing on Rachel as a motive, and Brian Tate as a potential alternate suspect, they would just focus their entire defense on the sloppy work done by law enforcement. They wanted to try to say that the police had not investigated this properly, that they hadn't looked into, maybe there's somebody else they hadn't looked into. There was no DNA, no fingerprints, no confession connecting Seth to the murder, and they claimed that the entire investigation was just botched. They said that the police checked the ballistics on the murder weapon, but they never checked the gun or the bullet in the chamber for fingerprints or DNA. But in the appeals documents I read, it said that no identifiable prints were found on the shotgun or the live shells. So to me, that means they did test them. They just didn't get anything back from them. Yeah, because I feel like if they didn't test them, they wouldn't have that information. Exactly. Right. Exactly. But the defense at the on the Dateline episode, the defense was like, they didn't check for this. This defense team decided that Brian Tate was not the deranged person that the other team had made him out to be. And so they decided not to show the jury all the dash cam tapes from the calls that police had made Mm -hmm. when Brian Tate reported the vandalism on his home. They had been shown at both previous trials. And they said it doesn't really show, like, he doesn't look bad in them. Like, he's pretty calm. He's yeah. not, like, ranting or anything. He's calling them terrorists and he's pissed off. But yeah, they didn't think it showed, like, murderous. Good. I like this team better. Yeah. Before the trial began, Todd Caldwell went over to, this is actually, like, a really sweet moment. Before the trial began, they're, they're in the courtroom. Todd Caldwell went over to the other side to Doug Teckle, Seth's dad, and told him that no matter what happened, he wanted him to know that he thought he was a really great guy. And Doug said he thought the same of him, and Todd stuck out his hand. Wait, the two dads. Like, he thought he, the dad, was a great guy, not Seth. Correct. Yeah. No, not Seth. Yeah. Doug. And so Todd stuck out his hand to shake his, but instead Doug, like, pulled him in and gave him a hug. Oh. I know. Because it's like you've done everything you can to raise – I mean, I don't know these people, but, like, you try and raise your kid. Like, they obviously don't want their son to be a murderer. They're going to lose their son, too, and their daughter-in-law, and their future grandkid. Like, And they're also not, like, trying to blame Lisa in any way or, like, you know, they don't believe that Seth did it, but they're not, like, being awful Uh, You know, I don't know. It's tough. I mean, it's so tough. The prosecution brought in a witness 
And I'm not totally sure whether this guy testified in the previous trials or not, but he was a friend of Seth's named Michael Shakel, a confidant of sorts that Seth knew from work. And he knew about the whole Rachel love triangle. He knew about the two phones and the spicy photos. (laughs) And he told Seth that he either needed to end things with Rachel or end things with Lisa. And he testified that Seth had replied, do you want to pay my child support? Okay. He also said that he was worried about ruining his relationship with Todd Caldwell if he divorced Lisa. Because remember, also, Todd has, like, not only is he, like, a mentor, but he has a say over his career. Like, he's trying to, like, go into law enforcement. At the end of April or early May, he overheard Seth on the phone with Lisa arguing. And when he got off the phone, he told Michael that he would be better off if she was in a car wreck and died. (gasps) Oof. The defense was, like, really shaking things up at this trial. They really minimized the focus on Brian Tate. They barely mentioned his name in the entire trial. And they also minimized Rachel. They only cross-examined her for seven minutes. They just said, who in the world would murder their wife to facilitate a relationship that hadn't even become sexual? And they pointed out that they'd only seen each other outside of work, like, four or five times. They spent the rest of their time attacking the investigation. And then... The defense attorneys dropped something of a bombshell. They said the biggest thing investigators didn't do was look into Lisa at all. They hadn't Mm. even examined her phone because if they had, they would have seen that she was also having an affair. What? So this affair was with another jailer that she worked with, Jason Tinnis. I believe he's a married father of four. It was a sexual affair. He even thought that he could be the father of Lisa's baby, but an autopsy had proven that Seth was the father. The affair had begun right before Lisa and Seth got married. What? Why? Why did these people get married? I. They don't even like each other. I'm shouting. I'm shouting. No, I totally agree. I think it's like one of those things where they'd been together for so long. But it's like so, so long what? you were Nobody in high cares. school and college. I know. No one, no one is like expecting you to. Who cares? Even if they are. No, I totally agree. <sighs> it had ended just weeks before her murder. Jason was never investigated. Police never even spoke with him. But Jason had an alibi. His wife, who testified that he was sleeping with her at their house all night on the night of the murder. Well, thank goodness for that, I guess. Yeah, but this might have produced a cloud of reasonable doubt about the entire investigation and Seth's guilt. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, maybe Jason didn't do it, but is there someone else, some other situation in their life that might have led to Lisa getting killed that wasn't Seth, that just wasn't investigated? But on July 24th, 2014, after two days of deliberation, the jury found Seth guilty of murder. Mm. That is not how I thought this story was at all. <laughs> I know. Me either. When I was watching this Dateline episode, it was like twists and turns. I really thought Seth was for sure innocent. Yeah. You know, until you get to a certain point and then you're like, oh, my God. Ugh. Seth showed absolutely no emotion when the verdict was read. His expression didn't change one bit when the verdict was read. Tracy, Lisa's mother 
walked across the aisle to hug Seth's mom, Lorraine, Aww. and Todd walked over to hug Doug. Doug and Lorraine do not believe that Seth is guilty. And Todd says, in this situation, everyone is a loser and nobody wins. And Brian Tate's sister says that she hopes Seth rots in prison. I mean, they lost too. The yeah. Tates. Yeah. Does he ever admit that he did it? Is he still saying he by killed the story? her? As yeah. far as I know, no. He's still going through the appeals process and stuff. Yeah. I think. Seth's sentencing hearing was held in September of 2014, and at it, Todd spoke directly to Seth. He told him that Seth knew how close he and Lisa were, and he knew Seth knew exactly what he was taking from him when he killed her. <sighs> Seth again showed no emotion. Presley also spoke, and she looked directly at him when she told him, I am no longer your sister, and I no longer love you. And he received life in prison without parole. Todd designed Lisa's headstone himself from a sketch that he made. And it's like Aww. very full of meaning and just really sweet and special. And that's the murder of Lisa Teckel. This is the second least favorite story you've told me. Number one. What's Do you know number, what it is? What's number one? Tanya Head. Number two <laughs> is this one. That bitch. Tanya Head will live in infamy in my mind. That's going to be like Look. a core memory for me is like <laughs> hearing that story. <laughs> and also, people, I'm not kidding. If you have cute how you met stories. I this was a, not one of them I at all. I could use a palate cleanser here. <laughs> one that uh, doesn't end in murder. Yeah, would be preferable. I just had to write Russell and I's for our wedding website. And that's like kind of a lot of pressure because everyone thinks their story is cute. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. But your story like is everyone's really kind of like, so. yeah, I, I kind of think I was like, maybe I'm going to hide that page of the website. Like, I don't really know that that needs to be like, just live out no, there. No, I know? read those on the wedding website. Me I, too. I, I do too. But then I thought, read. is this obnoxious? I couldn't no, tell. Be a, it's your wedding. If there's ever a time to be obnoxious, this is it. Be obnoxious. Well, do we have any shout outs? I'm sure we do. I feel sorry for the people that have to be associated with this sorry loser on this episode. Shout out time. I love shout out time. Shout out time. Me too. It's my favorite time. Oh my Everyone God. Can I please do the first listen. one? Yes. <laughs> please do. Uh, major shouts to Tawanda. Oh, I feel like there's a story there. It's from um, Fried Green Tomatoes. <laughs> I'm older and have more insurance. Sounds like you know. Major thanks, Tawanda. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Tawanda, thank you. Thank you so yes. much. Our next famous adjacent adjacent is Hannah J. Lynn. I like Hannah J. There. Lynn. That's a beautiful name. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Major shouts. Famous adjacent adjacent. Major shouts to Amy Geise. Oh, I like that. That's not how I would have pronounced that at all. Right. That's why we have the pronunciation guide. And that was great, Amy Geisy. I am very excited for this next one <laughs> because we get the shout out. It says shout out to you two. I don't need a shout out. You girls are doing an amazing job. So fun to listen to. 
You two make me laugh all the time. Oh, thanks. Is that not the sweetest? That was very sweet. I want to shout you out, but I don't because maybe you don't want us to use your name. But you Look, know who you are. We're shouting you out in spirit. Up. Thank you so much. <laughs> we love you. Thanks for the support. We should end on that high note. We do have more shout outs, but we should end there. Yes. And we will be back next week with some back more shout outs. Thank you so much for listening. Follow us on social media. We're at Creepers Pod on Instagram. We've got that awesome discussion group going on uh, on Facebook, the True Crime Creepers discussion group. And yeah, y'all quit adding my mama to that. And MoGab is sometimes on Twitter at Creepers Pod. So go follow us there. <laughs> Sign up on our Patreon if you want some bonus content. Patreon.com slash True Crime Creepers. And uh, yeah, tune in next time when I'll tell MoGab another wild, terrible story. I really like the bit of me only being on Twitter occasionally. <laughs> It makes me not, like, I probably could get it together, but it's not worth it. It's part of our brain. Okay. Bye, peeps and peeps.